Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time I start singing in a sermon, people leave, so I thought I'd play the original. This time, you may be familiar uh, with that song, 1963, so it's been around a while, Keep On Running. I hadn't realised until I actually Googled the words this week just how appropriate they are for describing the Christian life. Have a look at the words with me. Keep on running, keep on hiding. One fine day I'm going to be the one to make you understand. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm going to be your man. What is it? mean to be a Christian. It means to keep on running, to keep on going. Sometimes all we want to do is hide. Sometimes you just want to get away from everything and hide. When it comes to our evangelism, we just talk to people and we long that they would understand. Someday, I just long that you would understand. Look at these next words. Everyone is talking about me. It makes me feel so bad. Hey, hey, hey. Everyone is laughing at me. It makes me feel so sad. So I keep on 
running. Ever known that? Ever felt that? Where you are in the minority, when you feel hard-pressed on every side? When you feel like everybody else just has life easy and they look at you and they pity you because you believe these outdated things and you just shackled yourself to the wrong side of history. So what do you do? Well, you just keep on running because that's basically all that is left for you to do. We're in the minority. As Christians in the UK in 2023, we are in the minority. We're outflanked on every side, wherever you turn outside of this room, you'd be in the minority. And sometimes it's hard to keep on running. Sometimes it's hard to keep going. So how do we keep going when the Christian life can be hard? When we think this would be easier if I just left it all behind, if I just went into hiding, didn't tell anybody I was a Christian, and actually just lived for me rather than for Christ. In our series in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we've been thinking about life on the front line, about how we as ordinary Christians can live for Jesus on our front lines, whether it's at home or in our communities or at work or at college or wherever it may be, that we live for Christ on the front line. And the Apostle Paul was writing to a young church who were in the minority. There weren't many Christians, full stop. And certainly in Thessalonica, they were outnumbered by those who didn't know Christ. And he's encouraging them to live for Jesus on their front lines. Wherever they were going, how to live for Jesus. And he rejoices in them. He delights in all that he sees of Christ in them. He gives them examples to follow. Follow me, follow each other. We use you as examples to encourage other people. He teaches them more about Christ, and he calls them to long for his return, to look to his return and to keep going. Christ is coming back is the big message of 1 Thessalonians, which is a glorious, glorious thought. Although it led to a problem. The letter had been received, it had been read, people had thought about it, but it led to a problem that we see if you just flick up to chapter 2 and the beginning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Remember, 1 Thessalonians, Jesus is coming, chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from others, whether by a prophecy or by word or by mouth or by letter or by dodgy YouTube video, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. You see, for their own gain, people had been saying that the day of the Lord... The judgment day, the return of the Lord Jesus had already happened. And this was really confusing people because clearly that wasn't true. And yet it seemed to be that these people knew what they were talking about and had an impressive way of getting their message across. And so they were just lost as to what was actually going on. And so a few months after writing his first letter, Paul writes again to the Thessalonians to say, yes, Christ is coming back, but he hasn't come yet. So keep on going. Keep on trusting. Keep following Jesus. So how do we live in these last days? In the days between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? How do we keep on going when it seems like we've backed the wrong horse? How do we keep going when our culture wants to tell us we're on the wrong side of history? We keep going. We keep on running. We keep looking to our Savior. We keep encouraging one another. And it's my prayer that as we look at this chapter tonight, 
will be spurred to keep on going for Christ. Firstly, to keep on going on the front line. See, Paul is the general directing the troops, encouraging those who are on the front line. He certainly knows how to motivate those who are at the coalface. Look at verse 3 with me. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. See, not only is he thanking God for the Thessalonians, but he says he ought to. Literally, he is under obligation to. There's so much to praise God for about these guys that he's left with no option but to praise God for them. He can do nothing but thank God. And we see it again in verse 3 when he says, and rightly so. He kind of interjects this thing that once again, I'm doing the right thing. The natural response to seeing you in action is to praise God and to thank him. This is the correct response to seeing the Lord at work. And what is it that he sees? Well, he sees that faith and love are growing. Their faith, their trust in what God has said is growing more and more. Literally, it is growing exceedingly. The kind of faith that even Mr. Kipling can't muster. And love is everywhere. Look, did you notice that? Who is it who loves? And the love all of you have for one another. All of you. This community is saturated in faith and love. And Paul rejoices in the God who grew it all. Why is it that Paul is excited. I wonder if you remember these words back from the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and love had defined them right from the early days and further down the road they are still the heartbeat of the church. What defines the Thessalonian church? It is faith and love. Paul has rejoiced, he's prayed for more, and rejoiced again. What a delight. What an example to us. He knows what to pray. He sees it in action, and he rejoices. One of the blessings, and it was a blessing, even when I tell you what was a blessing, of Monday morning was that after six weeks of sabbatical, that I was really grateful to the church for the opportunity to have, I had six weeks of church emails to catch up on to read a deluge of roundups and mashups and missionary updates all in one go actually did my heart good because I saw the Lord at work in his people. Prayers answered, requests for help met, faith displayed, love in action. A couple of times I read something and noted it down because I felt I should probably follow it up, read a couple of more emails and realized it had already been dealt with and I didn't need to. It was a glorious update from one of our missionaries. Here's the issue. Oh, and straight away I'm reading in the inbox. It's the Lord's answered. It is a glorious thing. May our faith grow more and more and more, and all of our love for everyone increase. Verse 3 is a wonderful verse, but the context makes it even more remarkable. Look at verse 4 with me. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. See, this isn't faith that has been grown in a peaceful country garden. This has been forged in a furnace. This is life on the front line, and it isn't pretty. This isn't a nice place to be. 
See, the word perseverance isn't rightly associated with things that we enjoy. I don't persevere through time with my wife, Ruth. I don't persevere through a good book. I don't persevere through a glass of Dr. Pepper. All of those things are just easy, fun, and enjoyable. Perseverance is about putting one foot in front of the other when we would rather sprint in the opposite direction. The Thessalonians are persevering against a constant battle with persecutions and trials. They're being persecuted directly for their faith. They're suffering because they love Jesus. These things would stop if all they would do would be deny the name of Jesus, and yet they continue. But they're meeting that struggle with faith. The word trials in verse 4, it stems from a Greek word that means pressure. It describes anything which burdens your spirit, which weighs upon you. Issues of health, of money, of relationships, of death itself weighing down so that life is a challenge, that it just makes each day really, really tough. What good can come from these situations? What can grow in that pressurized environment? We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Paul recognizes that in this wilderness, in this fiery furnace, is the place where God proves himself and imprints the likeness of his son upon his people. I wonder who you thank God for. Who do you thank God for in your own prayers? See, I don't believe that Paul is saying this in the abstract. You read other letters of Paul, and you get what looks like his kind of address book at the end. There's, there's a whole list of people. We never heard of them. They're not mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. And yet, Paul is grateful to God for them. He highlights little things that they've done, the way they've blessed him, the way they've pointed him to Jesus, the way they've served the church. There are hundreds of people like that. I think Paul had... Thessalonian people in mind as he was saying yes you're the one whose love has encouraged me you're the one whose faith has really challenged me I'm sure there are specific people he has in mind when he's thanking God who do you thank God for here are three briefly that I've been thanking God for this week who I want to boast of tonight many of you will know that for Alistair Hunter Spokes this has been the worst week of his life his dear wife, Glenda, uh, she went to be with the Lord this week after uh, a long battle with cancer. Uh, she has gone to be with Christ, and it's a glorious thing for her, but obviously a devastating time for Alistair. What a joy it has been to see this man in the midst of such pressure, rejoicing in who Jesus is, delighting that he kept Glenda to the end. His priority when talking about the funeral, when talking about making arrangements, when talking about communicating with other people, is that they would know Jesus. Here is a man in the midst of all of this pressure, all of these trials, is outward looking and longing that people would know the hope that he has in Jesus. On Monday at Coffee Stop, I was talking to Carol Veer, again another who has battled with cancer who is just going through one of those moments in life where everything goes wrong. Lots of things that maybe if it was just one, you could deal with it, and yet when there are so many, uh, the boiler had gone, and because it's up in the attic, it's really difficult to get to, uh, and there are issues going on in the house, and her health isn't very good, and there are other issues going on. 
and yet sitting at a table just here at Coffee Stop, just telling me how it just makes her love Jesus more, how it makes her long for heaven more. This is life on the front line. Alistair's front line is grief. Carol's front line is illness and life just seemingly collapsing. And yet they are praising. And thirdly, it's those tearaways over in the community all over there. The number of the youth whose life is more difficult at school and at college because they go to church, because they love Jesus. And yet they continue. I'm glad I'm not a teenager at the moment. I thought it was hard back in the 80s. I think it's hard as it is now. And so we pray for those guys, but we see them serving. And that is a glorious thing. That is a heck of a front line to be at a school and a college in 2023. But I thank God for them. I boast about them because of their faith and their love. Who do you thank God for? But secondly, who is thanking God for you? We can easily and naturally pull back from the front line because it isn't a nice place to be. But actually, what are we missing out on when we do? In perseverance, through heartache, through rejection, in the midst of suffering, when we cling to Christ more closely, when we depend on his spirit more readily, oh, what joy we know. As we will find that our faith grows, that our love increases as God proves himself worthy of all of our life. When we depend upon him in new and vibrant ways, he will always prove himself to be faithful. Verse 4 reminds us that the front line is real. But verse 3 shows us that we should press on rather than retreat because the victory is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to him and then we look to our brothers and sisters and we say, yes, that is why I know that Jesus is real. God's goal isn't primarily to remove your suffering, however much we wish it was. It isn't primarily to take away your trials. It is to make you more like Christ. So keep going on the front line because he is at work. As Paul continues, his second encouragement is to keep going with our testimony. Our testimony of the goodness of God in our lives. You see, he wants to recalibrate our thinking in relation to God and our suffering showing us how it should send us to him rather than away from him. So often we're told that the hardships of this world are evidence that God doesn't exist or that God is unable to deal with it or that he doesn't care about us enough. Suffering should send us away from God. But Paul says that God, and specifically his justice, is seen in the way that Christians approach suffering. We've seen that Paul rejoices because in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, God is growing faith and love in the Thessalonian church. In this place where you wouldn't expect it, where you wouldn't think it was there, it is blossoming in this beautiful way. But Paul wants all to see that there is more going on, verse 5. All this, everything we've seen in verse 3 and 4, is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'd be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Paul is saying that because God is keeping the church now in the midst of trials, 
so we can trust that he will keep the church to the end in the midst of everything. God is proving himself faithful now, so we have the evidence we need to know that he would keep them to the end. Those who are able to stand, able to praise on the very darkest of days, are doing something profound. They are proving God's justice and demonstrating the evidence that they will make it to the end. As Alistair shines for Christ on the worst week of his life, he is demonstrating to all who will look that the God who began a good work in him will keep him to the end. If this isn't going to shake him, then obviously God will keep him to the end. And again, what a joy this is for Paul. Do you see why he is using the Thessalonians as a spur for his own faith and his own encouragement? Look back with me at what he longed for in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And there in verse 5, as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. He is seeing this in action. He is seeing what he has prayed for lived out in these people's lives. It will happen because God is just. Those he calls, he keeps. The fact that evildoers cannot separate you from God right now is evidence that Satan will never, ever rip you from his hands. No one, says the Lord Jesus, can take you out of my hand. The ones the Father have given me are safe. No power of hell, no scheme of man. And to reassure the church about God's justice, and I use that word on purpose, to reassure, Paul talks about hell. Now, we don't like to talk about hell. We probably don't talk about it enough. And when we do, we need to do so humbly and sensitively and with in one sense, a heavy heart, not because it's not true, but because it is an awesome thing to be talking about. Paul is clear that we need to know that justice will be done. Listen to these powerful words from verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. See, verses 6 and 7 are a wonderful comfort. The big idea is that God sees, God knows, and he will repay. Every cruel word, every action intended to harm, every moment of ridicule, of persecution, of shame, remembered by the God who sees all. Nothing gets past him. The word trouble is the same as the word trial in verse 4. And Paul is suggesting that everything will be reversed. Those who seem cursed will be blessed. Those who seem blessed in this life will be cursed. Some of you are crying out for relief. It's coming. 
Some of you long for that time of rest. It's coming. It's coming. It will be here. And what a moment. End of verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. See, we're gearing up for, for Christmas and the first coming of the Lord Jesus. He came in humility, in poverty, in obscurity, born as a baby, laid in a manger. Yes, there are angels in the story, but the emphasis is much more upon their messenger uh, role rather than their might and their power. But the second coming will be different. He will be revealed from heaven in all of his majestic glory. The image of blazing fire taking us back to Mount Sinai and the terrifying presence of the God of heaven. It will be clear, it will be stark, and no one will miss it. His powerful angels will flank him as he bestrides the earth ready to claim what is rightfully his. And it's bad news for his enemies. See, at this point, we need to pause. For those of you here last week, I want you to think back to then as we considered the compassion of the Lord Jesus. Many of you have read the book, Gentle and Lowly. It's many people's highlight of the past couple of years that focuses on the very heart of the Lord Jesus. We know that he is good, he is kind, he is tender, he is compassionate, he is merciful, he is loving, he is patient, and he is caring. We know Jesus. We need to have that to the forefront of our mind as we delight, as we marvel at who Jesus is. And the first word of verse 8 shouldn't change that. He this is Jesus, okay? The Jesus that you know and that you love, he. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those you have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Do you see, we can't detach this from who Jesus is. Every conversation, every thought, every meditation about the reality, about the nature of hell has to be done in the context of who Jesus is. This is not something that Jesus is ashamed of. This is not something that should change the way that we view him. It should grow our view of him as we understand more of who he is. But this is not to be detached from the Jesus of gentle and lowly. See, this is from the heart of Jesus Christ. So the question is, is your view of Jesus big enough to be able to take what we read here? See, the Bible sees the justice of God as another reason to praise, not a reason to shy away, not something to what wish we cross out of our Bibles and go about it in a different way. This is of Jesus, and so we reverently submit to him. Jesus will punish, literally inflict vengeance. That's what the Greek means. But upon who? What crimes require this response? Do you see it there? Not knowing God and not obeying the gospel. See, ultimately, it's a rejection of Jesus himself. How do we know God through his son? What is the gospel? It's the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. And a person's response to him is the difference between life and death. 
See, verse 8 tells us who will be punished, and in verse 9, it's how. See, punish here is a, a different word from the previous verse, and it means to suffer the penalty, pointing to the rightness of the judgment mentioned in verse 5. It's why it's an overflow of God's justice. The word destruction is linked with ruin, the meaning being that those punished will be eternally ruined, eternally reaping the consequences of their rejection of Christ. When Christ comes again in victory, they will be on the outside, away from his presence, away from his glory, with a future only of suffering, of punishment, and with no hope. See, when Jesus returns, there will be two groups. Those who will marvel and those who will be punished. And Paul knows where the Thessalonians will be. End of verse 10. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. See, Paul is sure because he knows how you move from punishment to marveling. You believe the apostles' testimony. You believe what the apostles teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. This includes you. Does it? Does this include you? Do you know that on that day you will be marveling at the glory, delighting in the return of the Lord Jesus, that this is the moment that you have been waiting for? Or will you stand in abject terror? Because the God that you ignored all of your life is here. Not as a tiny baby, but as the righteous judge of all the earth. But we can't just be thinking of ourselves. We need to, of course, but we can't just stop there. See, Paul finishes this section by pointing to himself and to his co-workers, the end of verse 10, because you believed our testimony to you. The Thessalonians were saved through Paul and his co-workers' testimony. They had shown them Jesus, the whole scope of the glorious eternal Son, and they'd moved from verse 8 and 9, the punishment, to verse 10, those who marveled. They heard and they believed. Who do you know who if Jesus returned tonight, they would go to hell. What do they need? They need you and me to get out of our comfy bubbles, to stop bowing down to our people-pleasing weakness, and to love them enough to show them Jesus. That's what they need. They don't need us to worry about what they will think of us. They don't need us to think, oh, maybe I will save it for tomorrow. They need us to lovingly and sensitively and appropriately point them to Jesus. We need to keep going with our testimony, our witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus, our declaration that Jesus is Lord, because people are going to hell on our watch. That's why we're going to pray Later in the service, we're going to pray for the people that we would long to know the Lord Jesus. If he returned tonight, who do you know would go to hell?
There is an urgency about the gospel. But it's not about guilt as much as it is about love. God works in justice because of his love, not despite it. There is no battle in God that his love and his justice are kind of waging war against each other. No, no, no. His justice is an outworking of his love. Hell is not God being unfair. Hell is God being God. And so in every area, including and specifically this, we should see his grace, his undeserved kindness to sinners who deserve hell. And so Paul rounds off this chapter by praying again for the Thessalonians. He's always coming back to the Lord in prayer, that they would keep going in the grace of God. What a prayer verse 11 is. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Why not commit to praying that for your Christian brothers and sisters this week, to have that verse open in front of you and to call to mind those who are on the front line with you and to pray those words for them. As always, it starts with God. He makes, it's his power, he brings. But the outcome is worthiness, is goodness and godly deeds, all of which a dying world needs from us. Let's show that the love we have for one another is increasing by praying these big prayers for each other as we're out on the front line. If you don't know someone that well, ask them, what is your front line? Where is it for you that you are engaged in these things? Who are the people that you're talking to? What are the challenges that you face? How can I pray for you? What parts of verse 11 do you need me to be praying for you this week? And Paul ends with grace, verse 12. We pray this, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How can it be that Christ is glorified in us and we in him? Just think about that for a moment. How can Christ be seen by others through we who are broken jars of clay? How can people look at me, broken, sinful, a mess, and yet see Jesus? How can it be that we are included in Christ, united to him in a deep and profound way that will last for eternity? It's according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is quick to speak of hell because he knows it isn't the future of those that he is writing to. He knows that the Thessalonians will praise God forever, rejoicing that not an iota of rebellion or evil will be present in his new creation. And it's where that we need to be, so that we are liberated from our inadequacies and free to point to Christ. See, a study of hell is hard. You can't study, well, you can study hell and not be emotionally affected, but it just means you're not doing it properly. It's hard. It's hard emotionally. It's hard intellectually. It's hard spiritually. Yet it should cause our wonder at the cross to increase, to marvel at the fact that hell has been taken for us upon the cross. Each person who dies without Christ will be punished for all of eternity for their sin. 
But that's just one person. Upon the cross, the Lord Jesus took that for every single person who will believe. Hell, for a great multitude that no one could number, laid upon the perfect Son of God. Don't let anybody kid you that because of three hours of darkness, well, any of us can get through three hours of suffering. No, 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 no. We have no idea what it meant to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not a clue. As we meditate, as we contemplate these things, as we think about what the Lord Jesus went through upon the cross, I encourage you to do it, but let me tell you, you will not grasp it. It is too big, it is too wide to understand what he went through. As we struggle to focus upon these words that talk about the punishment for those who don't believe, let it send us to the cross as we see the one who took unimaginable punishment, who drank the cup dry, though there was not a drop for himself. He took it all because he loves us and because he longed that there would be that great multitude that he could give as a gift to his father and receive back as his bride. Do you see how understanding the terror, the desperation of hell should cause us to delight in the cross, that hell is not in our future because Jesus took it in our past. It's too big. It's a scale we cannot comprehend and yet it should grow our love for the Savior who showed such grace to those of us who deserve nothing but hell. See, our love for the lost is too small because our view of the cross is too small. Because we don't really understand what Jesus went through. We don't see, we, don't, we can't take in the future for those who don't know him. We don't see the, the glory of the love that brought him to this world. We need a fully rounded view of God that means that we see him as he is, not as we would like him to be. Maybe it would make our conversations easier if we didn't have a God who was holy and was, justice, was just. Yeah, that's not God. A God in our image is no God at all. For in his grace, he has revealed himself to us. And through the cross, he's provided a way for the objects of his wrath to become the recipients of his grace. I wonder if as the Thessalonians heard these words, that their minds went back to the first letter and these words. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What does a deep understanding of the gospel do to the heart of a believer? It grows a profound thankfulness to the Savior who rescued us, to the Savior who took the coming wrath upon himself, who transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and saved us by taking it all upon himself. And it grows an urgent longing that everybody we know would be rescued, that everybody can say that that is true for themselves. 
I wonder, do our conversations reflect this? Do our prayers reflect this? Do our thoughts about Christmas reflect this? Brothers and sisters, we have good news. We have the best news that Jesus Christ will save from the coming wrath, the right and proper justice of God. So let's keep going on the front line, lovingly pointing to Jesus, the one who will be revealed in blazing fire, the glorious Savior, the God of compassion, the one of all love, the one who took hell so that nobody need go there because Jesus Christ died and he rose again and he equips us to serve him, whatever our front line is, for his glory and for his praise. Let's pray. Father, these things are hard. We don't want to be trivial or flippant. We don't want to brush these things off. We want to know you as you are. And I pray that you would stir our hearts. That we would long to know you more. That you would grow faith and love within us. That we'd be a community defined by those things. And that as an outworking of that, that we would love those who don't know you and would long that they are saved from the coming wrath. Father, use us, we ask. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to be brave, to step out in boldness on our front lines. And just as people in our past pointed us to you, so we may be that for others. Father, I pray that we would encourage each other, that we would pray for one another, that we would share encouraging stories that spur one another on. And that every day we would look to Jesus, that our view of the cross would grow, our delight in all that you've done for us would expand. And that we would long for your return when all that is broken in this world will be healed and righteousness reigns. What a glory, what a prospect. Thank you that you have set your love upon us. Lord, save more, we ask, for your glory. Amen.